Welcome to Building a Greener Idaho, your source for insightful conversations with diverse voices at the intersection of people, profit, and planet. Welcome to Building a Greener Idaho, your weekly radio Boise program covering the intersection of people, profit, and place. I'm your co-host, Chris Wilson, and joining me today is climate scientist and recent Harvard PhD graduate, Katie Dagan. Katie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Chris. Um, I was happy to uh, to run across your work online, and um, it sort of sparked in me an interest I've had recently, and that what are our options for responding to climate change on, on kind of a big picture level? I know we you know we've been very focused on uh, emissions, carbon emissions, and those are certainly an important part of the solution. But but what else is out there in the toolkit? And um, you know, I have I found that there are a few. Uh, other sort of um, geoengineering tactics that people are looking into and came across your work. So it's really interesting to me, and, and it will be to our audience as well. Why don't you tell us a little bit about, about your, your recent PhD work and what you do? Sure. So I was a PhD student for the last six years at Harvard, and I was studying the potential impacts of solar geoengineering on the climate system. And when I say solar geoengineering, I'm referring to a set of techniques that we could use to um, mitigate the warming from greenhouse gases. And ways that we could do this uh, include reflecting some of the sunlight back away from the earth in order to lower the surface temperature. Uh, And this could be a way of counteracting climate changes from greenhouse gases that would cause warming on the surface. But we're also really interested in some of the unintended consequences of these techniques. Um, For example, something that I've looked at is what does it do to the hydrologic cycle? So what does it do to precipitation on land? Um, And so I use a climate model to study some of these potential impacts. So use the climate model to run simulations where we have solar geoengineering and we look at how it affects the climate system. Okay, so um, interesting. So you know, I guess part of the the issue with climate change is that we we have uh, energy from the sun entering our atmosphere and and not leaving in the same quantities it used to, and and that is causing a warming phenomenon. And I should remind our listeners that here on Building a Greener Idaho, we've been on this theme of change, and of course, climate change is um, is one of those examples of change. And I wanted you on the show, and that's why we're happy to have you here today. Um, so let's go a little deeper into solar geoengineering. Um, tell us about you know what this looks like in practice. How how do we accomplish something like that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's right to start from thinking about the energy budget of the Earth um, and how we can uh, change the energy budget of the Earth to counteract the warming from greenhouse gases. And when we talk about solar geoengineering, we're thinking about uh, radiation coming from the sun and how to decrease the amount of solar radiation hitting the surface. And one of the ways we know something like solar geoengineering might work is because we've observed something like that happening after large volcanic eruptions. So when a volcano that's particularly large and powerful erupts, it can spread ash and uh, aerosol particles into the upper atmosphere, uh, into the stratosphere. And these particles actually reflect sunlight. Uh, So for example, after the eruption of Mount Pinatubo in 1991, 
there was a measurable uh, cooling effect of about a half a degree. So it doesn't sound like much, half a degree centigrade. Um, but given that we've had these observations after volcanic eruptions, it uh, tells us that something like this actually works. It actually does change the energy budget uh, in terms of decreasing the temperature because these volcanic aerosols can reflect sunlight. Um, so one way of doing solar geoengineering would be to potentially mimic a large volcanic eruption. So to put reflective particles in the upper atmosphere, in the stratosphere, to try and minimize the amount of solar radiation coming into the Earth system. You know, I, w I grew up in the Midwest, and at that time period, the next season after the Mount Pinatubo eruption, there was uh, a noticeable impact on the Midwest weather. In fact, we had more of a, a cooling effect there than, than globally was experienced, and we also had um, a pretty severe flooding year, and some of that was attributed to the change um, in our atmosphere from the impact of Mount Pinatubo. So that one, that example is sort of one I lived out, and I, and I know uh, from experience that it can have a pretty big impact, uh, one, one volcanic event. Yeah, absolutely. And you brought up a couple of good points. One was that there will be uh, regional differences in the impact. So the number that I cited, the half a degree, is the globally averaged cooling that was observed. But absolutely, you're right. There were uh, different cooling effects observed in different places. And so one of the other things that we're interested in finding more about are what the regional differences are, like how something like this would affect different regions. Um, what are the positives and negatives? Um, and of course, the hydrologic cycle. So you mentioned flooding. Um, you know, when you change the energy budget of the earth, uh, even by a small amount, even to potentially counteract some greenhouse gas warming, that's going to have impacts on the hydrologic cycle. So we're really interested in making sure we understand what those impacts are and where what they are in different places. Um, and you know, what are potential impacts that could be worse than, you know, something that we're trying to prevent from climate change. So it's hard to, it's hard to make those direct comparisons, but that's why we use models. So we can run different scenarios, you know, with climate change scenarios, with solar geoengineering and compare the effects and try to understand what this all means. Yeah, um, I've got a couple of, of other things that, that have come to mind of, as you've been talking. So one is this idea of an aerosol. Maybe we should define that for our listeners. I I took a change on um, uh, basically changing Earth climate um, over the last several million years in college. And I remember something about this Mount Pinatubo effect, and um, I believe it was sulfur dioxide having a role in the atmospheric change. Um, but, but maybe I'm my memory banks are mistaken, but just, just kind of clear the air on, on what this, these aerosols are and, and what's actually, what chemicals are, or what substances are up there making the change happen. Yeah, you're exactly right, Chris. So sulfur aerosols, sulfate aerosols would be from a large volcanic eruption would be the reflective aerosols that would cause the cooling effect. We also see sulfate aerosols having an effect from uh, coal-fired power plants. So when coal is combusted for energy use, uh, there's a variety of compounds that are emitted. One of those compounds um, is sulfate aerosol. And so there's also um, a small cooling effect from the aerosols that are emitted from things like fossil fuel combustion. Um, but it's the same principle as from a volcanic eruption. Um, from a volcanic eruption, the sulfate aerosols sort of dominate 
from a large eruption, they dominate the effects. So you see that cooling because the aerosols are reflecting the sunlight away. And is that because they're present in higher quantities from a volcanic event or because they're getting higher in the atmosphere or both? Um, both, actually. So for Pinatubo, it was such a powerful eruption that the aerosols were able to get higher into the atmosphere. And that's a good point. Um, for smaller eruptions and for the example of coal-fired power plants where the aerosols are emitted lower in the atmosphere, they don't last as long. So how long these particles last, we call it the aerosol lifetime, is really important to understanding the effect. When the aerosols are in the lower atmosphere, they are often rained out. Um, they're they react with other particles, so their lifetime is maybe on the order of weeks to a month. However, if the particles reach the upper atmosphere, the stratosphere, there's not a lot of chemistry going on up there, and um, the particles can last a lot longer as they're sort of transported around the globe, and so they can have lifetimes of up to a year or two. So that makes a big difference in terms of their uh, ability to cool because they're lasting a lot longer. Okay, thanks for that. So let's just do a little recap for listeners before we move on. Um, we're, we're talking about solar geoengineering, or essentially strategies for mitigating um, global warming or you know climate change due to greenhouse gases in our atmosphere. And we're, we're doing this by trying to limit the amount of solar radiation that's making it through our atmosphere and, and causing the warming or getting the heat energy being trapped in here. Uh, and this concept you're calling strat stratospheric aerosol injection is, is kind of analogous to what happens in a large volcanic eruption where some of these sulfur compounds get high up in our atmosphere and they reflect some of the sun's radiation? Yes, that's correct. Okay. All right. Well, you've also touched on a few things, um, one of which is pertinent to our, our theme of change. We We just had some sustainability psychologists on uh, recently, and they had some really interesting things to say about the way the human mind works. And, you know, at, at the core of it, we do have a fear of change. And so you mentioned that you are, you're really interested in what are the unintended consequences of this sort of earth scale engineering. Um, and that's important, I think, to get people on board that this is a viable solution, because they're going to be scared of the what ifs. So how, how do you how do you go about, uh, you know, analyzing what could happen? Yeah, that's a really important point. And a lot of the comparisons I do, I'm looking at scenarios with and without solar geoengineering in the future. And so we're kind of comparing the scenario with unmitigated global warming, climate change, and what are those impacts on things like extreme events. Um, so heat waves, droughts, those are things that I've looked at in the model. And then how does that compare to the world that has some solar geoengineering to mitigate uh, some of the warming. What does that do to other things in the climate system? Um, and so I think it's really important to be clear what you're comparing against each other. Are you comparing you know, present day climate to a climate with geoengineering? Are you comparing a future climate where we're looking at, okay, we're gonna start seeing more of the effects of climate change and how many of those effects can be mitigated with this? And I would say, what I've found in my work is that there's pluses and minuses, and it depends on what region of the world that you're looking at, and it depends on what you're comparing to in terms of if you're comparing to just completely unmitigated warming, or if you're comparing to present day, or you know a climate of the past. It's really important to be clear what your baseline is, um, and also be clear what system you're looking at, what region you're looking at. 
are you thinking about an extreme or are you thinking about um, some some other impact that this might have on the climate system? Okay, so you're looking for sort of net benefit. Um, you know, what are the outcomes, pluses and minuses, uh, both regionally and globally, and, and kind of looking for what's the what's our best option, essentially? Yeah, there's a lot of open questions because this field is relatively new. So there's a lot of interesting things to ask. And that's why models are great tools for this, because you can run um, you can run these future scenarios. And of course, you have to trust the models. But we know that the models aren't perfect, but um, we have you know, pretty good confidence in the state of the art and how, you know, how much work has gone into the current models that we have. And so at, at the same time, you know, understanding how far models can get you, they can only get you so far. You're not going to be able to completely replicate the behavior perfectly of the earth. Um, so really understanding those trade-offs is important too. Um, but also looking at sort of the, the pluses and minuses of doing something like this. Yeah, I think it's interesting that some Frank talked there on on the modeling because that's you know if you if you follow um, social media threads where people kind of debate this the idea of climate change models are often one of the things that that throw people off. They're like, well, you know, it's a model. We can't put too much stock into that. And you know, I have a computer scientist friend. He's working here at Boise State, and he's not actually working on um, climate change per se, but he works with computer models and. His um, expertise uh, is pretty pretty good in the in this field, and he's let me know that the models for all endeavors have gotten quite a bit better over the years. So you know you you can have more confidence in the outcomes of those predictions, but they're not one hundred percent. Yeah, I agree, and I also think maybe it's important to bring up observations, so Earth system observations, to make the models better, and also just using whatever observations we have um, in terms of how aerosols affect the climate system. We do have some observations from volcanic eruptions. We also have observations uh, from aerosols, you know, from other sources. And so trying to use observations whenever we can to give us some confidence in what the models are telling us. Again, the observations only go so far, but that's another tool that we can use. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting how sometimes we're not willing to take take the the logical leap with uh, computer models or climate but we do it in so many ways in the rest of our life you know we we have we put our money in our 401ks with the confidence that the stock market's going to go up because it has in the past and you know politicians and policymakers are, are constantly making decisions with a limited body of knowledge but making the best decision they can based on the facts that they have um, and this is really the way that we've gone about decision making forever but we're we're, sometimes we hit a stumbling block with this, with the notion of climate change. Um, and so it's, it's, it's interesting and it fits within our greater theme of change here on Building a Greener Idaho. So thanks for, thanks for speaking to that. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think this is a good point for us to take a quick break for Station ID. You're listening to Building a Greener Idaho. I'm joined today by climate scientist Katie Dagan. She's a recent Harvard PhD graduate, and her work is in solar geoengineering uh, for solutions to mitigating the Earth's warming due to climate change. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Building a Greener Idaho. I'm your co-host, Chris Wilson, and I'm speaking with climate scientist Katie Dagan, a recent Harvard PhD graduate. Katie is well-versed in um, Earth systems and and how we might go about with some solutions uh, to climate change leveraging our systems. So 
We've been covering this concept called solar geoengineering, or ways to essentially keep some of the sun's radiation from penetrating our atmosphere and, and contributing to the warming. But there's another option on the table, and that's this notion of carbon dioxide removal. So, you know, not that we probably, our listeners need a reminder of this, but we've taken millions of years of stored carbon and taken it out of the, the nearest ground and put it up into our atmosphere in a relatively short amount of time, last couple hundred years. And and that's a, a big thing to unwind. So a lot of our strategies involve reducing emissions, which is a great idea, and we should continue to work at those efforts. But, you know, what are our options for actually taking that carbon out of the air and and putting it back into the earth and, and those type of large-scale solutions? So this idea of carbon dioxide removal. Now, Katie, I know you didn't study this specifically, but it's a, a really sort of a tangential um, field to what you studied. I know you're you're pretty well versed in it. So why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners a little bit about carbon dioxide removal. Sure. So if we wanted to try and target the source of climate change directly and the most important uh, greenhouse gases, of course, carbon dioxide, the most um, problematic, I would say, in terms of its warming effect. And there's so much of it already in the atmosphere. How can we get rid of it um, faster than um, so how it would be sort of naturally removed very slowly over time? Um, but what if we don't want to wait that long? And it looks like we don't really have the time to wait that long because um, of the effects of climate change that we're already seeing. So some of the ideas here are thinking about making the removal of CO2 um, faster. And one way of doing that is growing more trees because trees take up carbon dioxide when they grow. So adding more trees to the landscape could potentially remove some of the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Uh, it's going to take a lot of trees to have a measurable effect because we've emitted so much CO2 into the atmosphere. Um, but that's one mechanism that could be a way of taking out carbon. Uh, another way could be just removing the carbon, removing the CO2 from the air chemically and storing it some way. So, you know, injecting it underground, uh, trying to store more CO2 in the oceans any way that we could remove that CO2 that's in the atmosphere and that's having that greenhouse effect and put it in another part of the Earth system or even recycle it in terms of trying to make energy from it. Um, these are some of the ways that people have talked about trying to accelerate that process of getting the CO2 out of the atmosphere. So in the case of trees, you know, we're all pretty familiar with trees. We like trees. We like the shade. We like like climb them or see our children climb in them. Um, you know, people are kind of inherently tree huggers, whether or not they identify as such. But, um, you know, there, there's this risk that they are, they're flammable and they're on the surface of the earth and that carbon could be recycled back into the atmosphere pretty quickly. Um, so what are our other options for maybe perhaps a more permanent storage solution? Sure. Yeah, I would say one option that's been talked about is injecting the CO2 underground into deep geologic reservoirs. And this would be a way of assuming that it was isolated from, well isolated from the surface, this would be a way of actually storing it for the long term. 
And um, are, are there technologies in, uh, that are already readily available to us that, you know, they don't require so much energy that it's, you know, it's a net wash. You're, you're pumping out a lot of CO2 emissions in, in this effort to uh, inject yeah. CO2 back into the earth. Yeah, that's a good question. Companies are working on capturing CO2 from the air, but you, you are, you're absolutely right when you say that we want to make sure we're not using so much energy to do that. Um, so you could think about trying to use renewable energy um, to not sort of cause more of a problem while, while you're trying to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. There's also um, capturing CO2 from fossil fuel plants, so preventing additional emissions from getting into the atmosphere. Um, and that's something that's been done um, on a very case-by-case basis, um, not really widespread technology. But going forward, if we want to continue using fossil fuels, um, way to prevent that CO2 from getting to the atmosphere is to sort of capture it at the plant before it gets there. Hmm. So kind of like a smokestack scrubber? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And we have we have that technology. It's it's in use at some some plant power plants. Yeah, it's a few, not very many. But. Okay. Well, you also mentioned this idea of using renewable power for these solutions, so we're not exacerbating the problem by you know emitting carbon emissions while we're trying to remove it. Um, uh, we should mention for our listeners that um, Audi has a has a project they call the E-gas plant in Europe, and they're actually using renewable power to create uh, natural gas from atmospheric carbon dioxide. So um, this, it, the future is now, I guess, there, there is technology in place to actually create a little hydrocarbon uh, fuel from atmospheric carbon dioxide. Now, it's not a, a sequestration per se, because that's a flammable fuel that we plan on burning to power our needs, but at least it's a closed loop loop cycle it's just uh, we're using the current carbon in the atmosphere and we're not contributing to the to what's in the atmosphere yeah that makes sense and that's sort of like recycling like you said versus uh, negative emissions which would be taking the co2 out of the atmosphere and then permanently sequestering it so we can't use it anymore and that's really the only way of decreasing the atmospheric concentration of co2 over time is to actively um, move that CO2 from out of the atmosphere and into different um, into different forms, into different permanent storage sites. Um, you know, we talked about different ways of doing that. But um, in terms of actually bringing down the concentrations in the atmosphere and, and really getting at the cause of climate change, that's the only way to do that. Um, the recycling processes would help in the meantime if they prevented other fossil fuels from being used. But you're right, it's not really a net uptake of the CO2. Right. And and I, I imagine natural gas is sort of a, a starting point. It's a rel- relatively small molecule, probably chemically and energy-wise easy, easier to make than, than, a long, than a larger molecule. But maybe over time that technology will evolve and, and we can actually produce plastics or, or something that will store the carbon long-term in more of a, a solid uh, state. So uh, I guess stay tuned for... Um, where Audi goes next with this e-gas plant, but um, there's one technology that's that's currently uh, underway. Um, you also mentioned um, Earth systems early on in this conversation. We, you know, we talked about it obviously in the in the solar geoengineering. Let's talk a little bit about the ocean. The ocean is a huge um, source and sink of carbon. So, 
Do, do you know much about the carbon cycles in the ocean, and, and are people looking into ways to maybe augment the, the uh, sequestration of carbon into the ocean? Yeah, absolutely. That's an important point. The ocean is such a large reservoir of carbon and, uh, and heat for um, a related point. I mean, the ocean has been taking the brunt of a lot of um, the warming from greenhouse gases, but also taking up CO2. And so if we were to try and change the circulation of the ocean uh, in order for it to take up more carbon and move that carbon throughout the deep ocean, because right now we're sort of limited by the mixing time of the ocean. So we have this interaction between the surface ocean and the atmosphere, and those are exchanging heat and CO2 and other elements. Um, but in order to sort of longer term store carbon and heat for that matter, we need to wait for the ocean to mix with the deep, the surface ocean to mix with the deep ocean. And that can take thousands of years. Um, and so I don't know too much about the specifics of how we would uh, accelerate the ocean circulation, but you can sort of um, think about that as a way of getting more carbon stored in the ocean. But then we would want to make sure that it was a permanent storage method and the ocean wouldn't just re-release that CO2 right. over time. And I'm sure we have the same sort of risk analysis, uh, due diligence to make sure we're not um, doing more harm than good with any sort of tampering of the ocean systems. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you worry about ocean ecosystems, um, ocean acidification from the carbon, from the CO2. So those are definitely important concerns. The, the other factor you mentioned, going back to this idea of maybe being able to store carbon um, underground or you know within the crust of the earth, was this idea of we don't want to um, create, uh, what did you call it, seismic risk. So, uh, th so there's actually a risk if we were to create storage capacity below the Earth's surface that we could unintentionally trigger earthquakes. Is, is that what's happening? Yeah, well, I, I, it's not really happening right now because we're not really doing it. But I think whenever you're thinking about injecting something into uh, below the surface of the Earth, into the you know lower parts of the Earth's surface, you want to think about how that could affect um, something like uh, seismicity and earthquakes. So right. something that we'd need to think about. And kind of a similar concern right now, we've got to fracking where we're doing a lot of drilling deep within the earth and, and removing of um, pockets of gas or fossil fuels and kind of creating this potential for seismic activity. So a similar concern there. Well, um, I want to recap for our listeners where we've been in this interesting conversation. Um, we're sort of wrapping up our theme of change here on Building a Greener Idaho, and uh, we delving a little deeper into the topic of climate change and, and what are some of our um, solution potential or opportunities for mitigating climate change beyond reducing our emissions uh, and allowing the Earth's natural carbon cycle to kind of slowly Bring, bring our atmospheric carbon dioxide back to a level that we were at sort of pre-industrial era. And so some of these options are, are geoengineering options. We've been talking about solar geoengineering or mechanisms to keep the radiation from entering our atmosphere, solar radiation from entering and, and contributing to the heating effect. Uh, we've talked about carbon dioxide removal or sequestration where large-scale efforts we could actually uh, extract carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and, and store it potentially underground or in the ocean, uh, in trees, or um, other carbon-based um, molecules that have a more permanent 
storage state than, uh, say, fossil fuels or, or just carbon dioxide itself. Um, and I, I want to mention to our listeners that, you know, this isn't all, all sci-fi or sort of 100 years out. We've we talked about Mount Pinatuba erupting in the 90s and having a measurable effect, cooling effect on our climate, and that being, you know, some of the basis for some of these concepts of how we could uh, cool our atmosphere using stratospheric aerosol injection. Um, we talked about a, a gas plant that Audi's developed in Europe where they're actually producing natural gas from carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and they're powering that process with renewable energy. So, you know, these technologies and these ideas... Um, they aren't coming out of the science f- fiction books. Uh, they're, they're reality, and they're being explored by, by scientists and smart people like you, Katie, uh, a climate scientist and a recent Harvard Ph.D. graduate. So I thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks, Chris, for having me. It was really fun. Yeah, we had a good time, and I hope our listeners enjoyed it too. You've been listening to Building a Greener Idaho. We're on Radio Boise every Tuesday at 3 p.m. We'll see you next week. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Building a Greener Idaho. Keep the conversation going on social media and at buildingagreeneridaho.org. And join us Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Thanks for listening.